I'm Laura. And I'm Vanessa. And And we're we're a Tap Tap on the Wrist podcast. Every week we bring you a new history story with an alcohol twist. The stories you didn't learn from a textbook. In season one, we focused on dirty conspiracies, exciting adventures, and alcohol-fueled crimes throughout history. And for season two, we're focusing on Al Capone and the Chicago Beer Wars in a weekly conversation. We're so glad you found us. Grab a drink and come along for the ride. Hello. Hi. I'm Vanessa. And I'm Laura. And welcome to episode 58 of A Tap on the Wrist. Woo! We made sure to look at what episode number it was before because I feel like I'm almost like, I don't know where we are. We are at 5-8. Yes. Exciting. It is We're almost at 60. <laughs> I know. That's how numbers work. <laughs> so how's your week been? You have a new, you have a new rug. Yes, I bought a new rug for my living room. It's real cute. Yeah. Um, this week is... It's it's going well. We've got a snowstorm coming. So, by the time you guys are listening to this, New York City will be covered in what they're predicting to be 8 to 12 inches of snow. Yeah. I, I feel like it's supposed to also snow on Monday and Tuesday. Like, it's supposed to just keep snowing. Yeah, it's it starts tonight, which is Sunday. Yeah. <laughs> And then it snows literally for the next, like, 28 hours. It's crazy. Until early Tuesday morning. Yeah. The biggest thing I'm most excited about is the alternate side parking is suspended. <laughs> <laughs> Woo! I don't have to move my car for trash. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> it's a big deal if you own a car in New York City. Yeah. Oh, man. What about you? How's your week? My week is fine, you know. Working from home. I got a new table. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I feel like nothing really... You know, we have a new president, which is great. I, I don't know. If, had had it been... What, did we record after inauguration? Yes. Um, so I feel like some good things are happening. I mean, we're obviously quite a while away from everything being fine, but I feel like things things are starting to happen. I feel like he's going to help with the vaccine situation because we were like, we just didn't have enough. I know. I, I'm just so ready for normal life to resume. Like, I'm busy right now, but I'm busy in a different way. I'm, like, busy with virtual meetings and, mm-hmm. you know, teaching from home is a hot mess and... um and by a hot mess, I mean I'm working harder than I ever have. Yeah. And getting very little reward. Right. <laughs> um, and it's just different. I just, I really want to be able to go back to school so that I have, like, my work school life. Mm-hmm. And then I can leave and I can come home and I can have my social life and, you know, downside because it's very blended right now. And that gets yep. hard. It feels, like, so monotonous and it kind of feels like my days just all blend together I know it's like I I took a day off last week and it was like I'm not really doing anything differently except I'm just not in zoom meetings you know (laughs) like I'm still sitting on the same couch in the same in my pajamas like you know like it's almost not you know like if you would take a personal day 
you know, on a normal work week where you were in the office and you got to like stay home and stay on the couch. It was like, so exciting. And now it's like, it's just the same place I've been all week. Well, yes, my roommate is hoping like fingers crossed for a snow day tomorrow. And I'm like, we've already been told by the mayor. They're like, you will continue remote teaching. And yeah. I'm like, God, I just want a snow day, but then what am I gonna do? I'm gonna just be sitting at home. I know, I thought I thought about that last time it snowed. I was like, damn. Kids I almost feel like kids are never gonna know what We're snow never days gonna are. have snow days again. Because now if it yeah, if it snows they could be like, remote day. Because like you guys are set up to teach remotely now. I know. And that's so sad to me. I just used to another, love snow days. Another thing lost to the pandemic. Yeah. Snow days. Do you remember being a kid? I mean, you remember being an adult, but like, I feel like it's more exciting as a kid when you wake up and your parents are like, school's closed today. Oh, you lived in Florida. I was like, you lived in Florida. <laughs> I forgot. I don't know. I don't, I don't know. Remember. <laughs> I remember being a kid and being like waking up and my mom being like, there's no school today. And like the adrenaline rush I would get. Yeah. No, if we ever had school canceled in Florida, it was because of, like, an impending hurricane. <laughs> and you usually knew that, like, days heading up. Yeah. And it was not just It was not fun. No, because it always, res like, resulted in power outages and flooding. Yeah. And it was never good. <laughs> well. So, no, I don't. <laughs> but as an adult, I remember snow days. I remember, like, even, like, probably last year... Maybe not last year, maybe two years ago. Like, we would have the kids, like, when we knew snow was coming, we would start with the, like, okay, guys, these are what you have to do to get a snow day. And there's, like, these, like, weird superstitions, uh -huh. right? Like, uh, what is it my friend tells their shoes? Oh, you have to flush an ice cube <laughs> down your toilet. Um, it's, like, wear your pajamas inside out the night before. Oh, I've heard that one, actually. You know, like, there's, like, all these funny superstitions, and yeah. we would, like, get the kids excited and be like, let's hope for a snow day, because, like, huh. the teachers wanted one, too. Yeah. And now it's like, oh, yay, another day on Zoom. I'm excited. And then, like, it sucks because, <sighs> like, on a snow day, when I was a kid, right, like, then we would, like, suddenly I wasn't tired, even... You know, you're not tired if you don't have to, like, go somewhere that you don't want to go. And so, like, you know, my mom and I would, like, get dressed and then we'd go out and play in the snow. And it's, like, now if it snows, like, kids can't do that during the day because they still have to go to school. I know. So sad. Do you know what I did forget to tell you? Um, and this is alcohol-related, so oh, we're bringing ooh. it back. Um, the day before the inauguration, I uh -huh. went to a liquor store and I was, like... I'm gonna buy little bottles of champagne, um, you know, to celebrate. But then I also was like, you know what? It's been a long winter. I'm gonna buy a good whiskey just because okay. I, I want to. Yeah. And so I ended up buying Uncle Nearest. Oh, which we, whiskey? Which yeah. We've talked about like yeah. we've done a, like a story, history nightcap yeah. about it, and um, so it is. A whiskey distillery in Tennessee and it's a black female owned right distillery which is amazing yeah but it also the history like uncle nearest is the one who taught Jack Daniels how to distill whiskey so it's like his recipe and his yeah dad. anyways I got home 
I sipped it. It was wonderful. Then I made a hot toddy with it. Ooh. And it was magical. So we highly recommend. Highly recommend. 10 out of 10. Nice. I got to get a good whiskey. I was like, so I mentioned I got a new table and there's basically like a shelf under the table where you can put alcohol bottles. And all I have is red wine, which I can't even drink. <laughs> Champagne, which I don't like. <laughs> vodka, which is meh. And blue carousel. Like, what the hell? <laughs> I was like, I was on a Zoom game night last night, and I was like, what the hell? I can't even have anything to drink, so I need to, like, make a stop at the liver store. Liver store. Yeah. Maybe buy some good whiskey. Maybe I'll get some local beers. Yeah. I mean, I thoroughly enjoyed that purchase and did not regret it at all. I mean, it's not crazy expensive. It's not, like, top of the line, but right. it's also not, you know... It's Bottom now, uh, what is the... Evan Williams. <laughs> no, 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 the, um... Uh, what is it? The really, really expensive whiskey. Oh, um... Pappy. Pappy. It's not Pappy. <laughs> it's not Pappy, but it's not Evan Williams. <laughs> oh. Okay, this week we have a really good episode yeah really interesting episode because stuff i didn't really know about right uh so i'm gonna tell you about the second half of the investigation into capone and vanessa's gonna follow up with the trial of capone the trial and Whew. it gets good it's good yeah. there's a lot of really interesting info For so sure. i think everyone's gonna enjoy it and we are counting down we are a mere couple episodes from the end of this season. I can't yeah. believe it. Um, yeah, so. And you can check out pictures. Um, we'll, we'll try to find some, some interesting pictures. I don't know if there are any from his trial. I know there's pictures from outside the courtroom, but um, but we'll, we'll post them. Yes. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at a tap on the wrist. And then, like Laura said, we're almost at the end, so if you guys want to email us with any ideas you have um, or thoughts on season two, feel free. We're tapontherestpodcast at gmail.com. Yes. Enjoy the episode. Okay. I'm back. Back with more investigation. Investigative research. Of our friend Al Capone. Of investigators. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, investigative research of investigators of Al Capone. Yes. Uh, so last week I discussed Elliot Ness and the Untouchables, who get a lot of the credit for being the guys to bring down Capone. I feel like in today's mind they get like all the credit because that's what I thought. This is true. Okay. So that's what I talked about last week. But yeah. they, <laughs> they shouldn't get all of the credit because even though Al Capone did violate the Volstead Act thousands and thousands and thousands of times. Um, that isn't what is going to bring him down. Uh, I mentioned last week that the president launched a two-pronged plan to investigate Capone. And so today I'm going to investigate that second prong. You're going to investigate? <laughs> <laughs> today I'm going to tell you about <laughs> the investigation. Laura's going back in time. <laughs> She's going to do this investigation herself, guys. <laughs> no, thank you. Um, they did not have the people source. I don't know what I would have used. 
Um, so this second prong is like the one that catches our guy and we don't even know this lead investigator's name, um, but we should. He is incredibly important. Very little is known about him, but his name is Frank J. Wilson. Never heard of him. Un- well, until I did research on him. <laughs> <laughs> I hadn't either until I researched Actually, this. that's a lie until Laura told me his name. <laughs> yeah. But so, Frank J. Wilson was born in Buffalo, New York. Um, May 19th- New Yorker. Yes. May 19th of 1887. So, by the 1930s, he's a very well-established investigator. He's been working. I almost said, when you said 1887, <laughs> I almost said, like me. Because <laughs> I was born in 1987. Anyway, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Same Z's. <laughs> um, however, and I, I was somewhat frustrated with this. There's, like, nothing written at all about this man's childhood. Like, even, he goes on to have a very successful, very interesting career, and at no, and he lives a very long life, and at no point did anyone, like, sit down and interview him about his early life. There's well, literally no information. It's probably because, like, his line of work wasn't, like, sexy. It was, like finances. Yeah, but <laughs> still, he's so important to like, that is this true. part of history. Anyways, um, that's all I could find about him is that he was born May 19th, 1987. 1887. Until, <laughs> 1887. <laughs> until uh, World War I. So Frank Wilson does serve in the United States Army for a very short amount of time. Um, he is honorably discharged in 1919 due to poor eyesight, however. Mm. So, um, but that's literally all I know about his early life and career. So we're just going to fast forward. Okay. We're going to jump into the investigation of Al Capone's finances. Let's do it. But that investigation didn't start with Al. uh, Or even with the intent of bringing down the Chicago outfit at first. Um... People were already investigating finances of the Chicago outfit before President Hoover got involved. Okay. And those people specifically were being led by prohibition agents, including Alexander Jamie, who we talked about last week, is Elliot Ness's brother-in-law. Didn't we also talk at one point about um, McSwiggin? Didn't he also, like, once try to use... Like, the paperwork from, like, that fake doctor's office and stuff. Yeah. Like, it had been attempted. Yeah, I mean, people had tried to take down Cabone in, during all of this, but I think it was really the push after the St. Valentine's Day Massacre where people really, really were like, okay, this has to come to an end. Right. So, while Prohibition agents are looking into um, some finances... They uncover evidence that indicates that not Al Capone, but his brother Ralph... Bottles! Bottles! <laughs> That's actually what I wrote in parentheses. Um, had not been paying taxes on what appeared to be a pretty sizable illegal income. Which, normally you're like, well yeah, it's a illegal income, why would yeah. you pay taxes on it? However, the government had gotten pretty savvy to organized crime, and in 1927, 
the Supreme Court had heard a case and established a precedent that any criminal activities that yielded an income were subject to paying income taxes. Even if they were illegal activities. Even if they were illegal. Okay. Which... So basically, if you were profiting, even on illegal activities, the government wanted part of the money. And honestly, I find it so freaking weird because if you can prove that I'm doing enough criminal activity that you (laughs) want me to pay taxes on it. Why are you not arresting me? Why are you not arresting me? Yeah. Or vice versa. Why don't you just make the activities legal and collect taxes on them? Right. <coughs> Marijuana. <laughs> like, just make it legal so that people aren't going to jail for it and you can collect taxes as a government. Like, right. it just... It, it doesn't make sense to me. Right. But, you know, that is another story for another podcast. But this is what happens. They catch bottles on his illegal... Lack of of taxes. Mm -hmm. And my guess is that it is mainly for this bottling company that he was running. Hence bottles. Hence bottles. Um, That was really a front for all the bootlegging business that they were doing for the outfit. And so this gets himself a target on the intelligence, um, like on the Bureau of Intelligence. Right. And they begin this tax evasion case against Ralph specifically. Okay. And then when the orders come down from President Hoover to look into Al Capone and they bring in, they they decide to bring in a separate person to investigate just Al's finances. And that's where Frank Wilson comes in. Mm -hmm. And so Frank Wilson gets recruited from New York. They bring him to Chicago because he's a very skilled investigator and they know that he's going to do the job. Okay. Um, so part of the investigation, they end up choosing to create not just a case against Al and Bottles. They're going to go against lots of leading figures in the Chicago outfit. The ultimate goal, bringing down Al Capone. But if they can get in and bring down some of the other men around him mm-hmm. and kind of rattle him and also hope that maybe one of those guys will flip on him, they can actually get Capone. So what happens, you know, they continue with the investigation of Bottles, and in 1930, Ralph Bottles Capone is convicted for tax fraud and ends up going to prison. Mm -hmm. However, they still don't have an evidence to build a case against Al, so the investigation continues. Um... They suspect that a large part of Al Capone's income is coming from his racetrack, which we have mentioned. It's the Hawthorne Kennel Club. It was in Cicero, Illinois. Um, Frankie, I was trying to trying to take it. Yeah. So, and it's interesting because this is one of his newer ventures, right? Um, and I would think, I guess maybe because it was so large and because of the just. What goes into the idea of gambling, the numbers are probably more profitable. That's why so much income was happening at the at the racetrack versus like a brothel or a speakeasy. Mm-hmm. But um 
I just find it interesting that it's like a newer venture that is what is gonna raise red flags to the investigators. Right. But okay, so Frank J. Wilson leads the investigation and he is trying to link Al Capone to the money from the racetrack. That is like his ultimate goal. Because if he can link them, then he can prove that Al Capone is participating in illegal activities, has an income, and has not paid taxes on it. Mm-hmm. So that's really like, it's got, you have to do all these steps. You can't just say you have money. He has to prove that, like, the money from the racetrack is going to Capone and that Capone is not paying taxes on it. Right. Because so anyone that looked at Capone would know he had money. Right. But, like, you had to prove how they had to he prove was getting how it. how he was getting it and that he wasn't paying taxes. Because he... And, but he was a smart businessman. Capone yeah. knew what he was doing. Anyways, we're going to get in. We're going to get into it. Okay. So, I just find it so fascinating that it's that operation that is what sends the red flags and not any of the bootlegging. Yeah. Or any of the the murders or any of the things we know him for. It's dog racing. (laughs) Like, are you kidding me? Okay. So, as expected of gangsters, including Capone, these men kept very little financial records. They had no bank accounts in their names. Um... And, you know, witnesses aren't just going to flip on Al Capone. When no. <laughs> so, like, it was very difficult to uncover evidence about their business dealings. But Frank J. Wilson and his team, which didn't have a cool-ass name like the Untouchables, he just they were just his agents, mm-hmm. um, were very diligent. And they examined over 2 million documents and pieces of evidence once they were brought in for the investigation. Sounds fun. I know. And people, like, you might say, like, well, you know, how did they have two million documents, Uh you know, if he didn't have business affairs? Basically, every time Elliot Ness or any other Prohibition agent that had been involved in trying to take down Capone in, like, the six years from, like, 1924 to about 1930... Anytime there was a raid on a brewery or um, a speakeasy or a brothel or a gambling hall, any of the documents that were taken from those raids were just kind of collected and sitting in a warehouse. Mm. So when Frank Wilson was brought in, they were like, here's all these papers. We have no organization system. We have no way of knowing. Just like, here you go. Have a party. Have a party. (laughs) And so he literally had to just go like, document through document trying to tie together some kind of evidence that linked Capone to the money. Right. Um, And so that's how he got it was through all these raids. That's why they had all this paper evidence. Mm -hmm. So their strategy was to show that Capone was spending a lot of money which would indicate to a jury that the money had to be coming from somewhere even though Capone had no job. Yeah. So In addition to all of the paperwork evidence, Frank Wilson and his agents also would go on many interviews. Mm -hmm. They questioned merchants of stores, real estate agents where Capone was known to do business, proprietors, hotel clerks, bartenders, and accountants, many of whom were too afraid to talk to them, but would maybe give them a piece of information Like, they were just trying to get anything that they could tie together. Um, 
Frank Wilson also tried to extend some sort of protection to individuals if they were willing to testify or give information, but most still refused to talk to them. Not surprising. Because of Capone. Yeah. But Frank did not give up. Um, They continued to analyze phone records, investigate banks and credit card agencies. They were able to find a few informants that were willing to talk to them. Um, They seized books from some of his businesses, and they searched for any weak point within Capone's business operations. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, they did a very thorough investigation of his financials. It's a real go-getter, that Frank. Yes. Um, One of the main issues that they had um, was that they not only had to find that Capone was making money, they also had to find where the money was. So they needed 100% proof that Capone had the money and that they could trace it back to illegal activity so that they could charge him using the same tax evasion laws that they had gotten bottles on. Okay. Um, So many of the leads would like get them one half of that. They could prove that Capone got the payout, mm-hmm. but then they couldn't prove that he actually had the money. So there's so many dead ends in this mm-hmm. investigation. And I think most people probably would have given up. But not Frank. Not Frank? No. Um, Capone was very smart about how he moved his money. He did it throughout his numerous establishments, uh, which just made everything so much harder to track and find. Um, he cleaned money through bootlegging, his brothels, racetracks, and through his many alliances in many parts of the Midwest. So it was damn near untraceable. Yeah. Um, and still, to this day, Al Capone's money has not been traced. They s- Wow. They still don't know where his money is to this day. Wow. Yes. That's kind of wild. Yes. But... Wilson was exceptionally thorough and relentless in his search, and he was not going to give up. Even when Al Capone started to get suspicious that he might be investigated more than Elliot Ness and the Untouchables, he knew about Elliot Ness. Yeah, I mean, it was all over the papers. That was all over the papers, it was all... But somewhere, there are rumors that at some point one of these informants had kind of tipped Capone off mm-hmm. that people were asking questions about his money. Um, there are other rumors that that is make-believe and it didn't happen, but I like to think it probably did. Yeah. And so they say that Capone was tipped off that the Bureau was investigating his finances, and one source went as far as to say that Capone had put out a hit on Frank Wilson. But then eventually canceled it, knowing that it would be traced back to him and it would be way too suspicious. Um, And then they would have taken him out on murder. Right. And so whether Capone knew he was being investigated or not, Wilson had actually figured out all of the evidence he needed, and he just had to piece it all together. Um, And what... Like, Wilson was confident he knew... And had the evidence he needed. But he really needed, like, one person to turn Mm -hmm. on the leader and be willing to testify against Al. Right. So they go to Ralph. Ralph says no way. He's not testifying against his brother. So then they turn to the next person in the outfit that they're going to target. 
And they go to Jake Greasy Thumb Goosick. Greasy Thumb. Yes. Um, he is the trusted treasurer and financial wizard of the Chicago outfit. Well, seems like a good person to go to if yeah. you're going after the money. <laughs> he also served as the mob's principal bagman in payoffs to police and politicians, which is how he got the nickname Greasy Thumb. And so what Frank does is he scours these ledgers and books and he finds that there is a purchase of $300,000 worth of cashier's checks at a bank in Cicero. And so he goes to this bank, he gets an informant who's willing to testify that the person buying these cashier's checks was Fred Reese. Um, and so then the Bureau has to track down this man, Fred Reese, who was on the run. He was hiding in St. Louis. They go to St. Louis. They find him. They bring him back to Chicago. And Wilson gets Reese to testify that the cashier's checks, which were gambling profits from the racetrack were received by Greasy Thumb Goosick. And it's this testimony that actually secures that Jake Goosick gets convicted in 1930. So now the Bureau has two men that they've gotten. They've gotten bottles and they've gotten Goosick. Mm -hmm. And... They just really need one of them to testify against Capone. Um, they also want Reese to testify against Capone as well. But Reese now has a giant target on his back for yeah. testifying. So he needs, like Frank Wilson says, we're going to protect you. Kind yeah. of like witness protection program. And so this is where I found, I, I like went down a rabbit hole, like a history rabbit hole right here. Um, and it's like this gem of a story and I'm going to tell you it's only a paragraph, but there is a group of men in Chicago at the time called the Secret Six. And Secret Six? The Secret Six. Hmm. And the Secret Six sent me down a rabbit hole of Googles trying to figure out who they were. And what they were doing. Uh-huh. And how they played a part in this investigation. And so here's what I found. The Secret Six is a group of six prominent men in Chicago who wanted to clean up the streets of Chicago. Elliot Ness is quoted as saying, These six men were gambling with their lives, unarmed, to accomplish what 3,000 police and 300 prohibition agents had failed miserably to accomplish. The liquidation of a criminal combine which paid off in dollars to the greedy, a death to the too greedy or incorruptible. Basically, these six businessmen pooled their money together to help lead the investigations of Elliot Ness and Frank Wilson and give them like unlimited resources to whatever they needed to take a pwn out. Damn. I guess that makes sense though, because when I was talking about prohibition agents in the last episode I mentioned how they were, like, so, like, severely under-budgeted. Like, they didn't make a lot of money. They didn't give them a lot of money to carry out right. their business. So, I guess it makes sense that they got funding from someone right. else. And so, 
These secret six, whose names have never been confirmed, there are many rumors as to who they are, and some are pretty well-known names, like Sears and Roebuck, like, Mm -hmm. you know, big names of the time. Yeah. But there's been no confirmation, um, except for one person who, like, in their death diary said I was one of the secret six. But, like, they just finance most of these investigations. So Frank Wilson goes to them and he needs to protect Reese at all, at any cost, uh, literally. So they borrow money from the Secret Six and they send him to Uruguay. And like... Yeah. Send him away. Okay. So the Secret Six, just so we understand, they had a part in handling... And paying for 595 cases, which aided in 55 convictions with sentences that totaled 428 years for organized criminals in Chicago. Fines of $11,525 were paid, and they recovered $600,000 in bonds and $52,000 in merchandise. Um, and they had a part in investigating over 25 kidnapping and extortion cases with nine convictions. Like, the Secret Six paid for all of that while they were helping the FBI in Chicago during this time. Damn. Which is just fascinating to Yeah. Me. So, okay. Back to Capone's investigation. I just, like, wanted to throw that in there because I thought it was so... Interesting. Yeah. Love secret organizations. Yes. So, Wilson has now taken down two of Capone's closest guys. And in um, the fall of 1930, Wilson is sitting in his office one night and he discovers a ledger that documents financial records for a very large gambling operation. And every few pages, there were calculations of net income that were to be divided between three individuals who were only referred to as A, R, and J, just by initials. And then Wilson found one entry that was written that said, Frank paid 17500 for Al. So, like, he clearly is like, okay, I have Al's name, and I right. have Frank's name, and, like, this is it. This is how we're going to do it. I'm going to take a wild guess that A, R, and J are Al, Ralph, and Jake. Jake. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That's what I assume, too. So, it is this ledger that Frank, or that Wilson finds that would finally link Al Capone to receiving income. Mm -hmm. But he still had to find where the money was being held in order to convince a jury that Capone was, without a doubt, guilty. Right. Um, And so... It's safe to say that Frank Wilson was a little bit of a workaholic, and when he wanted something, he didn't let it go. Um, later, like years later, people would quote as him as saying, like, Wilson fears nothing that walks. He'll sit quietly looking at books 18 hours a day, seven days a week, forever if he wanted to find something in those books. Determination. Yes. And then a suspect that he once interrogated said he sweats ice water. Oh my God. (laughs) Like he was just a very like strict, determined, like focused man. Right. He's the right guy for the job. Yeah. Okay. So now Frank's 
job. He's got the ledger and evidence. He just wants to find one of the outfit's bookkeepers to get them to turn on Capone and testify that the A in the ledger and the Al in the ledger were, in fact, Al Capone. Right. So, for three weeks, Frank Wilson does nothing except evaluate handwriting from every single one of Al Capone's associates. He checks voter registries, bank deposits, bail bond certificates, and other things. Right. Okay. Wilson is able to identify a bookkeeper named Leslie A. Shumway um, at a dog track in Miami. He goes down to Miami. He persuades this man to testify against Capone. Um, and Shumway had been working in Chicago at an establishment for Capone before moving to Miami. Um, and so he was asked to testify that the money from the establishment was designated to go to Capone between the years of 1924 to 1926. Um, and Shumway agrees. He does testify uh, in front of a grand jury and eventually in front of a trial. So Wilson and his team also found that Al Capone had been making wire transfers to members of his family. They found wire transfers in Chicago and in Miami under different names. Um, and then our friend Reese comes back from Uruguay. He would testify against Al Capone now trying to get an indictment. Um, and Frank Wilson has now been successful. He's found the evidence that tied Capone to the money and the evidence that Capone and his family had received the money and they had evidence he had not paid any taxes on it. Mm -hmm. So he had like all three parts of his puzzle. Yeah. It was time for the next step. They go to the treasury department and then in June of 1931 a grand jury meets to decide whether they're going to indict Capone or not. Um, Capone is indicted on 23 counts of tax evasion for over $250,000 of income between the years of 1924 and 1929. And then there's a trial. And then there's a trial. Which Vanessa's about to talk about. Yeah. <laughs> Which is why I'm going to stop there. But I just... I can't believe how hard it was to convict Al Capone. I know. Uh, like, and he, because he was so public facing and he's just, just doing shit out in the open. Yes. But. And then again, I just want to quickly wrap up Wilson's story. He actually goes on after, because Vanessa is going to tell us the story of Al Capone's trial. Yep. This episode. But after the Capone thing wrapped. Frank Wilson goes on to be the lead investigator for the Lindbergh baby kidnapping. Um, and then in 1936, he actually becomes the chief of the United States Secret Service. Oh, wow. Um, so he, Impressive guy. Yes. And he is responsible for creating the program that educates Americans against counterfeit money. Like, it was called Know Your Money was the program. Hmm. And it's like one of the reasons that like people know what counterfeit money is yeah and know to look out for it interesting it's like frank wilson that headed that whole money that yeah. whole organization so i got a lot of my sources from history.com 
Um, I also used that same article, The Rise and Fall of Elliot Ness. They talked about this side of the investigation as well. The people source. Um, it was just pretty fascinating. Cool. So like Laura said, I'm going to give a rundown of Capone's trial for tax evasion. There is going to be some overlap, obviously, because trial is a result of the investigation. So the trial all begins June 18th of 1931 when Capone appeared at the Chicago Federal Building before Judge James H. Wilkerson uh, and entered a plea of guilty to tax income tax evasion. He knew he was getting off. Easy. Uh, yeah. So, oh, he also pleaded guilty to the 5,000 Volstead Act violations uh, that our friend Elliot Ness provided. Um, Judge Wilkerson adjourned the court for a while. He said he would come back July 30th and consider the plea. Now, as Laura implied, the reason that Capone went in with the guilty plea was because his lawyers had been meeting with one of the attorneys for the prosecution, George E.Q. Johnson, uh, and they had come up with a plea deal where Capone would pay back taxes and also serve a short two-and-a-half-year sentence at Leavenworth Penitentiary. So, like, not as intense of a prison, short two-and-a-half years, probably wouldn't even end up serving the whole thing, like, a case. Celebrity treatment. Yeah. Uh... And Johnson, for his part from the prosecution, was open to the plea bargain because A, the idea of having to keep witnesses alive, B, keeping jury members from bribes, and C, a lot of the evidence was kind of circumstantial against Capone. So, like, he was like, you know what, at least he gets gets punished and I come out, you know, winning, even if it's less than what he should get. Right. So... That means that Capone was going into it confident. Um, The day before his sentencing, he was quoted as saying, I've been made an issue and I'm not complaining, but why don't you go after all those bankers who took the savings of thousands of poor people and lost them in bank failures? Mm. I mean, he's not wrong. He's not wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Unfortunately for Capone, when Wilkerson came back on July 30th, he did not give Capone the answer he was hoping for. Wilkerson said that there would be no plea deal and that Capone's case was going to trial. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. He was quoted as saying, It is time for somebody to impress upon the defendant that it is utterly impossible to bargain with a federal court. So he was like, you know what? Fuck you, dude. I'm going to make an example out of you. (laughs) (laughs) So unsurprisingly, due to this turn of events, Capone's counsels rescinded the guilty pleas and Capone changed his plea to not guilty. Uh, it's even said that before changing his plea, Capone's lawyers gave the government a final payment offer of $4 million for his like two over $200,000 back taxes, but that didn't work. Mm-hmm. They couldn't be bribed, just like Elliot Ness. Yeah. Okay, so Capone's actual trial would begin on the morning of October 5th of 1931. However, a couple of weeks before the trial began, our good friend Wilson, uh, Frank Wilson, got word from informant Eddie O'Hare that there had been some jury tampering happening. Uh, So he claimed that Capone's men had gotten a hold of the jury list and that they were beginning to use some 
persuasive ta tactics. Uh, for example, passing out $1,000 bills, uh, promising political jobs, giving away tickets to prize fights, and, quote, using muscle, too. Okay. Uh, and even though Wilson was at first kind of skeptical, he was like, are you, are you sure? Uh, he changed his tune when O'Hare was able to name 10 of the jurors and provide their home addresses. He was like, oh, shit, you're for real. Wow. <laughs> Yeah, so armed with O'Hare's information, Wilson and Johnson, the prosecutor I mentioned, uh, went to the judge, and uh, Wilkerson basically told them to chill out and not to worry about it. He said, bring your case into the court as planned, gentlemen. Leave the rest to me. Oh. Mm. That sounds sketchy. <laughs> so Capone walked into the trial that day confident, smiling at the jury because, you know, he assumed his men had taken care of the situation. Uh, I read that there were a lot of women trying to get a look at him because that was how it is, isn't it? It's the bad boy. <laughs> um, but then, in a sly and brilliant move on Judge Wilkerson's part, uh, once he took his seat at the bench, he called the bailiff over and said, quote, Judge Edwards has another trial commencing today. Go to his courtroom and bring me his entire panel of jurors. Take my entire panel to Judge Edwards. So he just, oh. like, swapped juries last minute so no one would know what he was doing. That. And they couldn't be bought off. He's so smart. Yeah. So all the bo the men that had been bought off by Cone's people went to an entirely different case. I don't think that's allowed, so <laughs> yeah. I don't think that could happen today. I know, I know. Okay, so the jury that they ended up with consisted of mostly older men and farmers who had never paid attention to Capone in the news. Um, also, Wilkerson had determined, um, kind of as Laura talked about, that the evidence of Capone's income tax evasion was what was going to be tried uh it took precedence over all the Volstead Act charges, and so that wasn't what the case was that was being presented. Um, so, Maya Capone Museum had a list of the jurors, so just to give you a sense of, like, the people, uh, there was Nate C. Brown, who was retired in 64, Burr Dugan, who was a farmer, 54, W.J. Henricks, engineer, 52, George H. Larson, pattern maker, 41, A.J. Meather, County store owner, 65. W.F. McCormick, receiving clerk, 58. Emmy Merchant, real estate broker, 30. Arthur, Arthur O. Pochono, insurance broker. A.C. Smart, painter, 43. Uh, John A. Walter, abstractor, 54. Louis P. Welding, painter, 62. And Louis J. Wolfersham. Uh, who was retired at 64 and was actually the only person from Chicago. The rest of the jury was from other areas of Illinois. So they just weren't really in Capone's world. Just could you imagine, like, now looking back, being a family member, like a descendant of one of these I know jurors and being like, my grandpa was a juror on the Al Capone trial. I know. Wild. Um, also, sorry if I said any of those people's names wrong. I'm sure I did. And so the trial commenced. So the prosecution consisted of Samuel G. Clausen, George E.Q. Johnson, who I mentioned, Dwight H. Green, William J. Froelich, and Jacob I. Grossman. 
So to start the trial, Green outlines the 23 charges of tax evasion against Capone in, in the government's opening statement. The prosecution then commenced with their argument to prove that Capone was a man of means and that he should have been paying his taxes. So Johnson called the first witness, which was a man named Charles W. Arndt, Arndt, Arndt? that's what we're going to go with. Uh, he was a tax collector for the United States, and his testimony was that Al Capone had failed to file any tax returns from 1924 through 1929. So the prosecution then continued with their strong line of witnesses and presented evidence that Capone owned gambling halls and earned a lot of money from it. So there were actually over 60 witnesses that were subpoenaed for Capone's trial, though many never actually testified. I'm going to list some of the more important witnesses that the prosecution presented, uh, along with what they were testifying against. So Chester Bragg was a man who participated in a citizen's raid on Capone's Hawthorne, Hawthorne smoke shop, uh, and that was a gambling hall in Cicero. So Bragg testified that while he was guarding the door during the, the raid, uh, Capone attempted to push his way inside. And when Bragg asked, what the hell, do you think this is a party? Capone answered, I'm the owner of this place. So like evidence that he had businesses. Right. Then a man named Reverend Henry Hoover, who was the leader of the Cicero raid, said that during the raid, Capone asked, why you fellas always picking on me? Uh, and he also warns that this is the last raid you'll ever pull. Ooh. Capone. Let's threaten a federal <laughs> investigator. Um, then Leslie Shumway, who Laura mentioned, um, was the cashier at the Hawthorne Smokehouse. Um, and he described the accounting procedures that were used there uh, and estimated that the profits for the two years he worked at the smoke shop were over $550,000. As Laura mentioned, Shumway was the one whose writing was identified uh, in the ledger that was confiscated during a raid. And the ledger had covered bets and profits from May of 1924 to April of 1926, um, as well as payments made to Capone and others in the gang. Then there was Parker Henderson, uh, who testified that he conducted the negotiations for the purchase of Capone's Palm Island, Florida estate, uh, which was $40,000. Not, not cheap. No. That's some people's salary in a year. <laughs> <laughs> and he also mentioned that Capone put the title in his wife's name, which was sneaky of him because, you know, he could be like, it was my wife's money. He testified that he also had endorsed and cashed several Western Union transfers for Capone in Florida uh, in around 1928 under the forged name of Albert Costa. Then, I see what he did there. Alcee. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> then there was Russell Garnett, who was a real estate broker that testified that Capone had the intention of purchasing more real estate in Florida on top of his $40,000 home. Uh, Morrissey Smith, who was a clerk at Chicago's Metropole, Metropole Hotel, he said that Capone purchased the hotel's most expensive suits and hosted lavish parties there. Uh, and when asked what bills Capone used, he said, quote, oh, $100 bills, sometimes $500 bills, which we know about him. 
He was that, that was the smallest bill he carried. Yeah. It was a hundred. Then we have H.F. Ryder, who was a Florida dock builder, who claimed to have seen enough money in Capone's Palm Island estate cupboard to quote choke an ox. I don't know what that. I've that's never a, heard that saying in my life. That's a weird saying. <laughs> Uh, and then other workmen at Capone's Florida Villa uh, gave evidence of $100,000 worth of improvements done to Capone's already $40,000 home. Wow. There were two women, Florence Peterson and Lucille Cashel, who were two employees of a, of a Miami Telegraph office. And they testified about large sums of money that were wired to Capone and his men while they were in Florida. So just lots of people talking about how much money Capone spent. Um, and two of the most important witnesses were likely Frank Wilson and Fred Reese, who Laura had mentioned in her, her part of the story, uh, who was a cashier of the Cicero Gambling House in 1927. So it was during Wilson's testimony that a letter from Capone's tax lawyer, Lawrence Mattingly, came into question. Uh, it was dubbed the Mattingly Letter, uh, and it expressed his willingness to settle Capone's tax liability ranging from 26000 in 1924 to 100000 in 1928 and 1929. Mattingly had given Wilson the letter personally and said to him, well, apparently he tossed it at Wilson and said, this is the best we can do. Mr. Capone is willing to pay the tax on these figures. Uh, and Wilson, of course, was like, no, and then kept the letter. Yeah. <laughs> uh, however, the defense of Capone tried to claim that Capone's lawyer couldn't speak for him or admit wrongdoing on his behalf. But isn't that what lawyers... Do they speak on your behalf? I, I, I don't know. Okay. <laughs> but after Wilson's testimony, Judge Wilkerson decided that the letter would be admitted to show that the statement was made, but that the contents of the letter could not be considered by the jury as proof of the statements made, which is a little confusing to me, but whatever. Anyway, Reese um, was, of course, a witness to Capone's character and lifestyle um, and his gambling halls, and had already testified in Jake Guzik's tax trial. Uh, he claims that in 1927, the hall had earned 100 or around 150000 and claimed to see Capone gambling himself with his own money. Uh, Reese also, like Laura mentioned, discussed the cashier's checks representing the hall's profits that were purchased from a Cicero bank, uh, one of which actually was signed by Al Capone. Um, and as a side note, Laura talked a little bit about how Reese didn't want to testify against Capone at first and, like, how to be persuaded. And according to my Al Capone Museum, one of the ways that they persuaded him was that they knew he had, like, an aversion to filth and bugs and rodents, like I feel most people do, but I'm guessing it was, like, more severe, like maybe an OCD. Um, so Wilson had Reese put into a dirty bug-infested cell. And it says it only took a couple of hours for him to break. Wow. It's fucked up. I did not read that. Crazy. <laughs> yeah, I read it on my Al Capone Museum, and I was like, I feel like I have to include this because that's so fucked up. Like, can you imagine just sitting in, like, a dark, dirty cell with bugs crawling? 
Nope, I'd break too. I know. I'd be like, what do you want to know, sir? What do you want to know? Please give me a shower, a nice hot shower, and get me the fuck out. Um, and again, as Laura mentioned, he was sent to South America until he had to testify in court for his safety. By the secret six. By the secret six. I did not read that part. It's still fascinating. I, I like, I don't know, I find secret organizations so fascinating. Um, Let's join one. <laughs> <laughs> Let's I start you, one. Maybe I'm already in one. Oh my god. <laughs> um, I just finished Veronica Mars season three, and they had like a secret society at the end of it. So I'm like very much in the in the headspace of secret societies. Yeah. Okay. So. The defense... If you know of any secret societies, send us an email. <laughs> Tap on the first podcast at gmail.com. We want to join. <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. Some of the secret societies are crazy. Okay. So, the defense, meaning Capone's lawyers, were Michael Ahern, Ahern and Albert Fink. Ahern and Fink. Ahern and Fink. <laughs> Uh, and they had less of a case to present than the prosecution did. Well, no shit, because uh, guilty. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was pretty unsurprising, because like Laura said, Capone is obviously guilty. He like, pleaded guilty. He's, he's guilty. Uh, he, and I feel like even when the trial went forward, he probably felt like he was not gonna, like he was gonna get off easy, yeah. I'm sure. Um, also... Ahern and Fink were both criminal lawyers who had no experience in tax law. Come on, (laughs) We know you have this money. You couldn't hire... Someone experienced in tax law? Like, come on. Uh, I mean, if he had been charged with the Volstead violation, sure, but that wasn't the case. Um, Also, they had been relying on the plea bargain, so they didn't really prepare for a trial at all. They were just like, this plea bargain is going to work. We don't have to do shit. And then all of a sudden they had a trial and they had to like scramble to get their act together. Amateurs. Yeah. Uh, So because of all this, the defense ended up presenting their entire case in one day. Like they only, their whole case, just one day. Whereas the prosecution had like several days of witnesses. That's crazy. So their claim was that Capone was a horse racing addict. And that he lost as much money as his businesses earned from 1924 through 1929. Ultimately claiming that Capone lost $327,000 in six years of betting. Okay, but you still have to pay taxes on your income even if you're betting it all away. Oh, I'll get there. So they called several bookies to the stand uh, to kind of testify that Capone was just losing tons of money and didn't really have any. Mm-hmm. Um, so th- one of the men was Milton Held, who claims that Capone lost three or four hundred dollars at a time. Uh, another man named Oscar Gutter said that Capone lost about sixty thousand dollars betting with him in 1927 alone. Which like, yes, that's a lot of money, but I feel like Capone had a lot more money than even three hundred thousand. Hundred dollars on a cocktail. Yeah. Anyway, uh, as Laura implied, it it didn't really matter, and showed that 
Ahern and Fink were pretty inexperienced in a tax law because gambling losses can only be subtracted from gambling winnings, it wouldn't have applied to Capone having to pay taxes on the income from his businesses. Right. Okay. So, like, he could claim against I could have been his Capone's wins. lawyer. Yeah. <laughs> like, he could have, like, he wouldn't have had to pay taxes on his gambling winnings if he had lost, but that had nothing to do with his businesses. Right. So their defense was pointless. <laughs> they actually just proved he had money. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so... The defense's closing argument, since they basically fucked that up, basically just tried to paint the government as, like, the big bad wolf and, like, the bad guy and Capone as, like, you know, this guy who's fighting against the man and, like, shouldn't be punished for for not giving in to the oppressive and evil government. Oh, <laughs> uh, Fink claims that the government was just using the tax laws as a means to stow Al Capone away. Uh, he also said, quote, he may be the worst man who ever lived, but there is not a scintilla, I think, of evidence that he willfully attempted to defraud the government out of income taxes. Uh, and then he quickly pointed out that Capone was not the worst man ever, but he was, in fact, open-handed, generous, and the kind of man who never fails a friend. So, like, he's the good guy, and the government is bad. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Sure. Uh, Ahern followed up, um, kind of on saying fuck you to the establishment, and said to the jury, quote, you gentlemen are the last barrier between the defendant and the encroachment and perversion of the government and the law in this case. Like, just trying trying to play to them and be like, you can help fight the man. Yeah. Uh, The prosecution, on the other hand, was like, no, fuck that, uh, and described Capone as a gambler, a realtor, a cleaner, an oppressor, and a dog racetrack owner who lived, quote, like a bejeweled prince and spent thousands of dollars without thinking twice. Accurate. He's also a bootlegger, a murderer, <laughs> yes. a hitman. But he did live like royalty. Like, he yeah. spent tons of money. He had beautiful homes, like... Cars, clothes. Yeah. Uh, they again brought up the Mattingly letter um, and said that that proved that Capone knew exactly what he was doing by avoiding paying taxes, uh, which agree. Yeah. Um, and Clausen said even a child could tell that Capone had a ton of money based on his lifestyle. Accurate. Accurate. <laughs> like, none of this was remotely wrong. Um, At least, like, Dino Banyan ran a fucking flower shop. Yeah. And, like, you know what I mean? Like, And Big Jim them... was a street sweeper. Right. <laughs> In his white suit. Um, but, like, yeah, they had, like, covers... Yeah. But he was just like, nope, I'm just going to flash my money around town and now trying to act like he's broke. No. Yeah. No, sir. Um, and then one last quote from their opening, I mean, from their closing statement from Johnson was, quote, this is a case that future generations will remember. They will remember it because it will establish whether a man can so conduct his affairs that he's above the government and above the law. So, I mean, I was, he, he's right. We do always remember Al Capone, though we don't remember exactly why he was bought down. Yeah. Now people will, because they'll listen to this episode and they'll know. 
Well, I actually do think people... I think the majority of people know that Al Capone did terrible things, but those terrible things are not what brought him down. I, I feel like you've heard it before. Like, people know it was the taxes that right. got him. They just don't know, like, all of these details that we've talked about today, like the investigation and all of that. They just know that one fact. Like, right. he didn't go to jail for all of his crimes. He went to jail for not paying his taxes. So yeah. pay your taxes. Yeah. Okay, so on October 18th, the jury went to deliberate, and Capone headed over to the Lexington Hotel, um, which I feel like in itself shows that he had money because he was paying to stay at a hotel by the courtroom. Right. It doesn't make any sense. Anyway... Uh, he waited there until 10.51 p.m. when he received word that the jury had come to a verdict. And by 11.10 p.m., he was back at the courtroom. Wait, 11.10 at night, they go to the courtroom to read the verdict? Apparently. It's Al Capone, and they, they fucking need to know. They're not going to wait till the next day. That doesn't <laughs> happen, though, I feel. I don't know. Don't, don't they, like, call people back as soon as the jury's done? Although, I guess the jury gets, like, off for the night at some point yeah. right i don't know i guess back then it they didn't have those rules yet <laughs> so weird um so at a, well this is according to my Capone museum which i do feel like is pretty accurate but you never know i guess um so the verdict was delivered and it was quote on indictment number 22852 for the years of 1924 we find the defendant not guilty on indictment number 232322 for the years of 1925, 26, 27, 28, and 29, we find the defendant guilty. So he was charged for every year except 1924, which seemed weird to me. Yeah, but I wonder if it's because in 1924 he wasn't in charge of the outfit. Like, if Torio was in charge, he might have had, like, a legitimate job. Right, because he was, like, a bouncer or something like that at the Four Deuces, right? Yeah. So, yeah, maybe, maybe that's why. Um, but for all the other years, he was held responsible correctly. Okay. Uh, so, ultimately, what this meant was that Capone was convicted of three felony tax evasion counts uh, for the years of 1925, 26, and 27, as well as two misdemeanor Failure to file counts for the years of 1928 and 1929. So people should pay their taxes. Just like Trump. Yeah. <laughs> Who hopefully... I think by the time this is posted, he will not be president anymore. Yes! I think. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. I'm, there's going to be so much champagne popped up. <laughs> so ready. So ready. Um, so a few days later, on October 24th, Capone uh, attended his sentencing hearing where he would hear what his punishment would be. So he was sentenced to 11 years in a federal penitentiary and also fined $50,000, which is less than how much he owed in taxes, so that seems weird to me. <laughs> uh, he also was ordered to pay the prosecutor's court cost, totaling about 30000 And like... Well, yes, I guess 11 years in terms of, like, a tax thing seems like a decent amount of time. 
It's just like when you think of all the crimes he committed, like, I feel like he's still kind of getting away easy. Oh, 100%. But that's not how we have to, like... Yeah. He's only found guilty on those couple charges of tax evasion. I've, like, read in some of my research that, like, it was an exorbitantly large sentence. For tax. For tax yeah. evasion. Yeah. Like, they were definitely making, like, a, a show of him. Right. But... When you now, think about the murder and the... <laughs> looking back from 2020 and knowing what we know about him and all the history and evidence, 11 years, he, I mean, he should have taken that with grace. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but apparently he didn't because he was real pissed after they read the his sentence. Um Apparently, according to my Al Capone Museum, after they read his sentence, he was handed a seizure of his Florida property by a bailiff, uh, and Capone lunged at him and had to be, like, held back by the guards. He also was really pissed off at reporters who were trying to get a picture of him entering his prison cell. Um, He pleaded with them, saying that he had a family and to think about them, but, you know, reporters being reporters wanted to get the money shot. Uh, So one in particular was very aggressive, and Capone swung at him and tried to hit him because he was so pissed. Oh, my goodness. He was was just an angry man that day. Uh, But he was escorted to Cook County, where he awaited the outcome of his appeal before moving on to another prison, which we will talk about later on next week. Um, (laughs) And... Though he did attempt these appeals, none of them would be successful. Right. The government was like, nope. You're going to serve your time, sir. Yeah. Yeah. And just as a small side note, because I wasn't sure where to include it, um, but early on in Capone's trials on October 10th, so about like five days in, his bodyguard, Philip Philip DeAndra, was arrested and given a six-month sentence after a pistol was found in his belt. Um, a bailiff at the courthouse had, like, noticed that DeAndre was giving the jury, like, dirty and menacing looks. Uh, and then he kind of saw, like, a flash of metal because he was, like, flashing his gun at them, like, to intimidate them. Amateur. I know. I guess since these guys, these jury members hadn't been the ones they bribed, he was, like, trying to find a way to intimidate them. Uh, but he was caught and sentenced to six months. I still think my favorite part of this whole story is the the badass judge, like, switching juries. I know, like, <laughs> last minute just being like, please go get that other man's jury, we're swapping. And I like that he just was like, you know, to Wilson and Johnson when they bought it to him, like, don't worry about it, I got it. Yeah. So cool so and funny. collected. Um, So my sources for this episode were, first off, an amazing website that Laura actually sent me. It is famous-trials.com, and it was written by a man named Professor Douglas Olinder. And it was, like, super thorough. They had, like, a full account of the trial. They had a timeline. And then, like, every witness, you could, like, click on their name, and it would bring up, like, a transcript and, like, quotes from the trial. So if you're, like, interested in, you know, trials in general, because there are, are tons of different trials on that website, um, or Capone specifically, you should definitely check out that website. Again, it's famous-trials.com. And, like, 
like my whole story it was like basically grabbed from that website so lots of props to professor douglas (laughs) (laughs) um and of course i did get some additional information from my al capone museum which i kind of mentioned throughout but that was it i didn't use i didn't use the people source this time no people source proud of you i know um so that's really his downfall and like I said, he's now in prison. We are going to talk about his time in prison next week um, in a location that Laura and I are both mutually fascinated with. Yes. Uh, Alcatraz Prison. We're going to Alcatraz, baby! <laughs> it has been, like, honored. Like, we've been talking for years about going to the West Coast. Uh, I want to go so bad. I know. So I'm excited about doing this episode, like, the research and history of Alcatraz, as well as focusing on Capone's specific stay there, but I also can't wait till we can actually go. (laughs) I know. We have to go to Chicago to see all these places, and then we gotta go to San Fran. It's gonna happen. It is. One day. (laughs) Pandemic be over. I just wanna travel. But in the meantime... If you want to see pictures, since yeah. we can't travel, it's probably going to be pictures of a lot of these dudes and also um, probably some documents or newspaper articles. I know my, my Al Capone Museum has a lot. Um, you can follow us on social media. We're at a tap on the wrist. And then if you have um, any ideas, we are slowly getting to the end of season two. Um, we've got a couple episodes left to wrap up. Al Capone and everything the outfit did and we're going to come back to some of those characters uh, that we've mentioned and tell their their endings but we are slowly making our way to the end of season two and and we have to start thinking about season three so send us your ideas send us stories you have really like anything you want to share yeah we have our history night cap so you can send us like cocktail ideas to post on there yeah but uh, any emails you can send to tapontheristpodcast at gmail.com. Yes, and we hope that you have a lovely week, and we will be back with some prison story. Prison talk. Prison talk next week. Cheers. Cheers.